Good afternoon and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Midden here with reporter Teresa Welsh for World Breastfeeding Week, where we are going to cover breastfeeding and humanitarian crisis. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So you had a story out earlier this week that really delved into how complicated but also how important breastfeeding is, especially for moms and families who are in the middle of humanitarian crises. Can you just frame this up for, for all of us and tell us why it's important that women breastfeed when even when there's a giant crisis going on. Yeah, so we wanted to look into this because as you mentioned, um, it's World Breastfeeding Week. It started yesterday. And um, breastfeeding, as I'm sure a lot of our viewers and readers know, can be a controversial topic. Um, and we should say right at the outset, um, we're not here to pass judgment on anyone or their choices. Um, but we're here to talk about um, the recommendations from the World Health Organization and from UNICEF and why they recommend breastfeeding. And um, they recommend that mothers breastfeed their children within the first hour of the baby's life. And breast milk provides really important nutrients and antibodies as well as getting that skin-to-skin -skin contact with the mother. And um, that can be a really difficult thing to do. Lots of women all over the world, not only in humanitarian crises or emergency situations, have issues with that. And so a lot of things that organizations um, in these humanitarian situations are working on is providing women with the knowledge and assistance and help to help make that process um, as successful as it can be. Sure. So just, you know, as you say, breastfeeding, it, it's not for everyone because it is so hard, even if you're in a completely stable environment. Why, you know, why and how important do kind of the global institutions and do organizations feel that breastfeeding is, that breastfeeding is in the middle of a crisis? So one of the main things is because it provides a um, steady, stable, and nutrient-rich um, way to feed an infant. In a lot of these cases, um, you know, if you are in the midst of perhaps um, a humanitarian disaster as a result of a natural disaster, or if you're in a refugee camp, IDP camp, um, you know, due to conflict, war, um, you know, Nutrition is a huge issue and access to nutrition, particularly for babies and for everyone is very scarce. And so breast milk is the easiest way to provide that to a child and has a bunch of other biological benefits as well. You know, what we're talking about here is something incredibly dramatic. I mean, whether we're talking about an ongoing protracted crisis like war or something much more acute and rapid onset like an earthquake, I mean, we're talking about a new mother in the middle of this situation and then also having to think about breastfeeding i would one might think that the stress of that might allow for a mom not to be able to breastfeed I and mean, what how how possible so that's actually something that i found to be really interesting when i was speaking with folks for this story that i did is that in all but the very 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 um most acute cases of malnutrition of the mother, a mother's body will still biologically produce breast milk and it will still have all of the appropriate nutrients for the baby. And so even if a mother herself has not had great access um, to regular food sources and most nutritious food sources, her body still is able to produce breast milk for the baby. Amazing. It is. So I want to get into one of the cases that you brought up in your reporting, which was the situation in Iraq. We're talking early 2000s during the war. 
Um, breastfeeding became, was, was really challenging for all the obvious reasons, but also because there were some perverse incentives not to breastfeed. Can you kind of describe what that was? Yeah, so, and this is common in a lot of places around the world where, um, you know, formula companies um, incentivize um, women, families, healthcare providers, nurses, doctors to recommend formula to use formula instead of breastfeeding. And um, an expert I spoke with from UNICEF was telling me about how in Iraq these views were sort of particularly entrenched and the government would give women um, bottles and give them formula after they'd given birth to their babies and they weren't really receiving any immediate um, information or coaching on breastfeeding. And so a lot of women just did not have access to that sort of information, um, you know, to learn about breastfeeding and why that is a great option. You know, on the face of it, having a government provide formula to new moms you know, seems like a reasonable thing, but were there kind of some underlying factors that led to programs being um, being designed in this way? Well, there's a lot of financial incentives for healthcare providers to do that. And so those are, those are pretty big obstacles for um, humanitarian organizations coming in because you're not only then dealing with an emergency situation, you're dealing with sort of the institutionalized way in which feeding a child has been promoted in a particular context. And you're actually talking about making some cultural changes, which as we know is a um, much bigger ask than just sort of teaching someone how to do something um, and particularly when it's something like breastfeeding that can be so difficult. So many layers of complication to a humanitarian response but when we're talking specifically about breastfeeding how do kind of the like special interests or something like that play into that conversation about distributing formula versus breastfeeding education and that whole so the World Health Organization actually has um, a code that they passed in 1981 that regulates the ways in which um, breast milk substitutes can be marketed, and they, um, the you know, the code does not say that they cannot be used, that people should not use them, but it's rules basically um, surrounding education of it and sort of trying to prevent, um, you know, industry and commercial interests from coming in and um, sort of just presenting um, formula as the only option. Sure. So another another case that you brought up, you know, Iraq war, kind of ongoing crises and crisis. And I want to I want to get back to kind of the conversation about how to manage breastfeeding in different types of crises. But I want to start. I want to really hone in on the other big example you wrote about, which is Haiti. Um, you know, that was a very rapid onset disaster. Even if you're talking about having ongoing kind of development or humanitarian programming around breastfeeding education and kind of helping new moms, um, helping facilitate breastfeeding for new moms, how do you prepare? When so, we're talking about something like a giant earthquake that no one foresaw. Exactly. And so um, that was sort of a situation in which, um, you know, several humanitarian organizations realized that um, babies weren't being fed in the appropriate way and babies were not getting appropriate nutrients. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, breastfeeding was not that common. And so that response sort of um, was a good use case for these organizations to take forward and realize that maybe there needed to be some more comprehensive training um, for staff. And um, that sort of involves 
training people that aren't only in the healthcare sector and working towards getting it sort of across sector. So, you know, in whatever way, uh, you know, humanitarian worker may come in contact with a new mother, they're able to provide some guidance. And not everyone is expected to be an expert, but everyone's, you know, expected to have that baseline knowledge. And then, um, you know, as responses sort of get set up, as you said, it's very context dependent. Um, but as more resources come in, these organizations work to, um, you know, provide breastfeeding specialists, nutrition specialists, um, connect mothers so they can share stories and experiences with one another, um, have safe spaces where women can come to breastfeed. That's another issue a lot of people have. There's not a big sense of privacy when you're in the midst of an emergency or if you're in a refugee camp and so setting up areas where women can come and really feel safe and comfortable and can ask questions and get answers yeah so I want to get more into the integration the more broader integration piece of this in a minute but when you were doing this reporting and you were talking to experts about the situation in Haiti in particular you know what you mentioned earlier is this this is really about nutrition about babies nutrition about health of the mother you know you know if it's formula if it's breast milk um, you know what what did it look like when there was a humanitarian disaster and there was no support for breastfeeding programs? Well, that basically leaves a lot of children in positions where they're not getting adequate nutrition. So, you know, that can lead to severe malnourishment, stunting, you know, depending upon the length and depth of the humanitarian crisis. Um, and, you know, unfortunately can also lead to death of children that are not getting um, adequate nutrition and essentially starve. So gender and gender mainstreaming is just a big conversation that's happening in global development and humanitarian assistance world right now. Um, you know, I do, I do wonder kind of when you look at all of the different gender initiatives that we have, um, you know, from women's economic empowerment to health initiatives, all of this, kind of where does breastfeeding fit in kind of that constellation of programming and priorities? Well, it's something that I think, um, you know, has been around for obviously a number of years. You know, the World Health Organization has has had this code against, um, you know, or regulating the marketing of uh, breast milk substitutes since 1981. Um, and then, you know, we sort of saw it evolve with the Haiti crisis that was 2010, and people are sort of integrating this more thoroughly into their response plans. And obviously, um, you know, we've got all kinds of crises all over the world, whether they be, you know, quick response, natural disaster situations, or, you know, the unfortunate, um, you know, proliferation of protracted crises that we find all over the world. And um, the Cox's Bazaar refugee camp is a good example sort of where this programming is playing out right now. And unfortunately, you know, that looks like it's going to be quite a protracted crisis. And so, um, you know, organizations are there on the ground trying to provide women with all of these services, with the support, and then also with sort of an eye toward the future of capacity building and, you know, working with other people that and organizations with the government to sort of change these attitudes and lay the groundwork, um, you know, for unfortunately future women that are going to be in these situations. You know, earlier when you were talking about kind of the response on the humanitarian side, you mentioned things like deploying breastfe breastfeeding specialists, you know, as part of a response and really trying to facilitate that engagement there. Um, for capacity building, you know, what, what does that look like into the future? I mean, you mentioned bringing in actors like governments, I'm sure NGOs, these, a bunch of different civil society organizations, but what does build capacity 
look like? It essentially looks like, um, you know, making sure that all of the people that are going to be involved in these responses have sort of the same basic understanding of why breastfeeding is important and the role that it plays um, not only in a baby's nutrition um, for the first six months of life beyond um, and sort of all the benefits that breastfeeding um, provides to a child um, for his or her entire life. And so um, in these protracted crises situations, um, organizations are working to sort of counter any situation like in Iraq where, um, you know, they the government was providing bottles, they were providing formula and sort of countering that mentality that that is the best way or the only way to feed a baby and working to sort of make those cultural changes and make sure that any new women that are um, either arriving in refugee camps or, um, you know, giving birth while they're there um, have immediate access to these resources and don't have to be searching for information about breastfeeding. So, you know, women, of course, a big topic that everyone is talking about, both in our industry, both writ large. Um, it feels like women's program, women's specific programming and all that is kind of in vogue. But historically, I would go out on a limb and say that we've seen times where it was probably harder to get buy-in for initiatives that were seen to be gender specific or, you know, oh, another gender initiative. Maybe that's not front and center. Um, I wonder if you encountered any kind of sentiments of like whether it was hard to get buy-in to integrate this kind of programming or kind of how it was viewed. Um, seems like it's it just seems like a pretty natural thing now. But has that always been yeah, the case? Yeah, I mean, I think, that honestly, the biggest opposition comes from the commercial interests of the formula companies. And, um, you know, huge multi-billion dollar multinational corporations um, that produce formula and obviously are incentivized to get people using that from the very beginning. Um, and in emergency situations, that provides a host of difficulties. You know, if someone is on the move, how do they have continued access to that? Um, sterilization is a huge issue of bottles. Um, not having access to clean water because obviously you need water to mix formula. And so there just sort of are a host of challenges presented with using formula in emergency or crisis situations and, um, you know, just sort of educating around the fact that, um, you know, those can actually present dangers to a baby, you know, if you're giving a baby formula with water that is not sanitary. Well, I'm thinking about the Haiti earthquake and the cholera. And you know, the water, I mean, the water issues, they're always terrible after a rapid onset disaster, particularly with something like that. I mean, in what kind of moral conscience can someone try to push, you know, push a product that might involve dirty water during an emergency? Well, I think it's babies? I think it's really difficult. And a lot of it, I think, also comes back to the education piece because, you know, people aren't necessarily thinking about the, these things. In a lot of situations, you perhaps are dealing with people that cannot read the packaging on formula, can't read all of the regulations and the ways in which, um, you know, it's supposed to be prepared in terms of, you know, heating to particular temperatures and all of the water issues. In your reporting, did you encounter a particular program or a particular set of programs that worked really well? So um, I spoke with experts both from UNICEF and Save the Children that are both working on this. And so UNICEF is actually the cluster lead for nutrition for the UN system. And so they are um, sort of responsible for shepherding um, the global policy um, around nutrition, which obviously includes 
uh, breastfeeding. And so, you know, the organizations really are working to be present on the ground in all of these situations and, you know, doing analyses and making sure that women that need this information are getting access to it and that, you know, people are really able to make the best choices for them and their families. So what did you get the sense? I want to leave our audience kind of looking ahead. You know, what are the big conversations right now? What are the pieces that maybe need to be changed or adapted right now in order to kind of spur more progress on getting more women breastfeeding, even in these horrific emergency situations? Well, I think a lot of it is going to be around capacity building, as we were chatting about a little bit earlier. And because we have so many protracted crises that don't look like they're going away anytime soon, I think that there are going to be a lot of situations where um, sort of this knowledge building and knowledge sharing on the ground is going to be really key and sort of getting local organizations involved, um, local healthcare experts, nurses, doctors, um, just sort of proliferating the training around breastfeeding so that, you know, even if someone is not a trained breastfeeding expert per se, they have the knowledge that, you know, skin to skin contact right after birth is really beneficial for the baby. Breastfeeding within the first hour is really beneficial for the baby. And then, you know, sort of if they see a mother that is having issues with any of these things, having the knowledge to refer them to resources with these organizations that are there on the ground. Do we see particular agencies or organizations really investing in these efforts? I mean, you mentioned like Save the Children and UNICEF, of course, are very involved in these, but like, where is the money coming from for those programs? So um, Save the Children has made this re- um, a priority in all of their emergency response plans essentially since um, Haiti in sort of the recognition that um, you know this really needs to be a piece of it. So it really is integrated into the whole um, humanitarian emergency response. Any final takeaways that you got from your reporting or anything kind of in this vein that you're going to be looking at moving forward? It was just very interesting to me to, you know, hear about the way that these organizations are trying to encourage breastfeeding and, you know, obviously here in the United States, it's also a really difficult thing and I think, you know, I'm not a mother myself, but, you know, I'm very aware of the difficulties surrounding breastfeeding and I think just sort of the importance of, you know, sharing the knowledge about it and recognizing that ultimately every woman has to make her own choice, but there are, um, you know, many, many medically proven benefits of breastfeeding and, you know, efforts to encourage that even in these very dire crisis situations. And for the moms who can't, making sure that there is, you know, programming and services that also allow them to give safe milk to their children. Exactly. Well, Teresa Welsh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us this week. Be sure to check out Teresa's story. You can find that on DoveX.com and on our Twitter page. How can people get in touch with you, Teresa? Um, You can see all my reporting at DoveX.com and I am on Twitter at at TMA Welsh. Be sure to tune in next week when we will be joined with senior reporter Michael Igo to talk about using development to counter violent extremism.